Welcome to Bible Breath, where we dig into the Word of God to catch our breath for whatever's coming next. Today we begin to answer a very important question. Who is God, according to God, <laughs> or according to what God tells us in the Bible? In other words, what does the Bible tell us about God? We'll be looking at three points today. That the Bible tells us that God is real, God is good, and that God is different. God is real, God is good, and God is different. As we begin, I'd like you to think about something else. The city of Athens. And I would like to ask you this question. How do you know that the city of Athens is real? Some of you know it's real because you've been there, or you live there. You've seen it with your own eyes. You know from your own experience that it's real, but for many of you who believe that Athens is a very real city in the world, you've never seen it with your eyes. You've never been there. And you, you believe that it's real because some source told you that it was real. A book that you trust, a person that you trust, a, a history professor that you trust, they told you that Athens is real, and even though you've never seen it with your eyes, you believe it's real because there's a source that you trust. The same is true about God. You've never seen God with your eyes, yet there are sources that let us know that he's real and sources that we can trust. And let's start with one that I think you trust, and that's your own eyes. Think about the Northern Lights. If you've ever seen the Northern Lights, it's, it doesn't happen every night, but on some nights you go outside and you look at the sky and it's like somebody had painted the sky. I look at the Northern Lights and I come to a conclusion. I can't do that, <laughs> no matter how hard I try. I think about what we know about our Milky Way. Think about the Milky Way, the Milky Way galaxy. You think about each of the stars in the Milky Way. And if you take a star on the outer rings, it would take you 220 million years to get to the other side of the Milky Way all by itself. And I think to myself, those statistics that we can measure, and I think, well, I can't do that. Somebody bigger than me did that. That's the natural conclusion I come to, and so that leads me to believe that there, there's a God that's real. And there are certain things about this real God that, that we can learn just by looking at the things that are here that we can observe, things that only he could do that you and I can't do. You know, for example, think about the pyramids in Egypt. What do you know about the pyramids in Egypt? They, uh, they're these pointy things. They're, they've been around for a very, very long time, sure. What do you know about the people who made the pyramids in Egypt? I bet you've never met them. But I bet you can come to some pretty good conclusions about them just by looking at what they made. You probably know that they were good at math. <laughs> you needed some pretty good math skill to put those things together in the way that, in the way that they did. You probably know that they were good at figuring out how to move heavy blocks because that's what they needed to do to get those into place. You knew those things about the people who created the pyramids, even though you've never seen them and you've never met them. We learn things about those creators by looking at what it is that they created. Same is true about God. This... Think about what we know about God when you think of the water cycle. 
you know, the water cycle of precipitation coming down from the sky and running off the mountains and causing the groundwater, which uh, provides the water for our oceans and lakes and streams, and then it evaporates, and then it goes back up into the sky, and the circle cycle starts all over again. Assuming God is responsible for that, because you and I can't make that happen as regularly as he does, that tells us that God cares about our lives. He cares about our planet going over and over again and again. Or look at the, the grain that grows up in the field that we use for food. Or look at the beautiful trees and the forests and, and the ma magnificent color of the flowers. Look at the apple orchards that produce apples all on their own without us having to do anything to make that happen. These things tell us something. And whoever it is that put these things here, he cares about life. He cares about sustaining the life that's here. And that's what the book of Acts tells us about God. It says, He has not left us without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving us rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides us with plenty of food to eat and plenty to drink. We look around at nature and nature tells us something about God, that God is real, and also that God is kind, that he provides for us. Now I want you to think about the hummingbird. Hummingbird is a tiny little bird that flaps its wings really, really fast. About 50 to 80 flaps per second. And again, I can't do that. And I can't build something that would be able to do that. Somebody smarter than me, someone wiser than me, somebody more intelligent than me put together the hummingbird. It's beyond my ability. I look at the hummingbird and it tells me something about the God who made the hummingbird. Tells me that it's wise, that God is wise. Psalm 104 says, How many are your works, Lord, and wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of his creatures. There's a, the sea is full of them and the birds of the air and, and the animals on the ground. You think about how many different insects and how many different animals and how many different types of birds there are. They're, they're seemingly countless. And in some ways they're similar. But in many ways they're all unique, uniquely pieced together in a way that they work, for the most part, without breaking all the time. And that's something else we learn by looking at nature. Something else we learn about God by looking at nature. God is real, he's powerful, he's beyond my ability, he's kind and taking care of us, and, and he's also very wise. He's smarter than me. Romans chapter 1 talks about this, says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, clearly seen, so that everybody can know who God is just by looking at nature, that he's real, he's powerful, he's kind, and he's wise. But that's not the only way that we learn about God, by looking and observing of what's around us. For a second, I want you to think about yourself. And I want you to think about the last time you felt guilty about something. Why did you feel guilty about something? Why did you feel guilty about that particular something. Who told you that you were supposed to feel guilty about that particular thing? According to the Bible, God did. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 talks about a group of people called the Gentiles. And by Gentiles, you just need to know that they hadn't read the Bible, and so they had never read God's particular laws, the Ten Commandments. No one had ever told them that this is what the Bible says about this and this is what the Bible says you should do about that and they didn't know them. And yet they still acted like people 
who had read the Bible, who had known God's laws. Paul says it this way. He says, he says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, like the Ten Commandments, the Bible, do by nature things required by that law, they're a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, the Bible, the Ten Commandments, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, he said, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. Our conscience is something else that teaches us about the reality of God, that, that in our hearts, God planted already the seeds of what's right and what's wrong and knowledge of that. And he does that for every person, whether or not they have ever read the Bible. My conscience tells me when I do something wrong and it pricks me, I feel, I feel badly. My conscience tells me when I do something good, that I don't feel pricked, I don't feel guilt, I feel good about myself. The conscience, in a sense, is like the check engine light on a vehicle, is that you don't think about it much when your car is when your car is working just the way that it should, because the check engine light doesn't come on. But when the check engine light comes on, suddenly you know, oh, something's wrong here. Something needs to be fixed. And the Bible tells us that God planted that conscience inside everyone, and there's evidence of that. Just look around the world throughout hist throughout history. And notice that most law codes set up by most countries are pretty similar. Same types of laws. You shouldn't hurt your neighbor. You should be kind. You should respect your government. You should pay taxes. Uh, you should help people out. All those types of things, you see it all around the world, all over the place. Not because the whole world came together and agreed, these are the laws that we're going to enforce and that we want everyone to practice throughout time. But because... God himself has a standard of what's good and, and what's not, of what's right and what's wrong. And he planted that standard inside every person's heart. There's a story in the Bible that gives us a glimpse into when that conscience was at work in someone's heart. The Apostle Paul and, uh, and his friend Silas, they were thrown in prison for teaching about the Bible. And it says that about midnight one night in prison, they were praying and they were singing hymns and suddenly there was a big earthquake. And... All the doors and the gates, the, the jail, they, they opened up and the, the guard came rushing in and he thought that everyone had gone and so he was going to kill himself because the punishment for being the jailer who was in charge of prisoners who ended up escaping, it was very, very harsh. He was about to kill himself, but Paul, from inside his cell, he shouted, he said, don't do it. He said, we're all still here. And so he went in to visit with Paul and Silas and he asked them a question. And the question he asked them was, what must I do to be saved? Well, that's an interesting question. What must I do to be saved? The only reason somebody would ask that question is if they were afraid that they aren't saved. And he apparently asked Paul and Silas that question because they had heard, he had heard them singing hymns to God. And his conscience had told him something that if he was going to die that day, he wasn't going to be on good terms with that God. And so he wanted to know, how can I fix that? So the conscience was at work. It's planted there by God to tell us when we're doing right and when we're doing wrong. But it teaches us something about God. It teaches us that God is good. God is good and God has a standard for goodness. Now, there are two limitations with the conscience that you need to be aware of. Uh, limitation number one is related to uh, the movie Pinocchio. The uh, Disney movie Pinocchio is one you might be familiar with, and you might know that there's another character in, in the movie Pinocchio called Jiminy Cricket. 
Jiminy Cricket served as Pinocchio's conscience. And then the first time that Pinocchio meets Jiminy Cricket, Jiminy Cricket gives him his instructions on what he's supposed to know as he goes through life now, and Jiminy Cricket leaves him with this advice. He says, let your conscience be your guide. And then he disappears. Good advice? Maybe. It's good advice when you're dealing with a healthy conscience. But not every conscience stays healthy. I remember hearing once that there was a group of Native Americans that described the conscience as like a triangle that sat next to your heart, a triangle with super sharp corners that just sat on a swivel. And they said that every time you did something wrong, that triangle had turned a third of a turn and pricked your heart. So they'd be, ooh, just like that. Ooh, I did something wrong. I did something wrong. That's what they pictured the conscience as, a little triangle on a swivel. Every time, ah, ee, ooh, ah, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but that triangle, the corners of that triangle kind of, well, they work like the, um, like a pencil, a pencil that you can sharpen. When you sharpen a pencil and the pencil is really, really sharp, if you were to take the tip of that pencil and jab it into your forearm, that's going to hurt. It's going to sharp. It's going to pierce the skin because it's so sharp. But if you take that pencil and you start using it to write on paper and you continue to use it to write and write and write until the pencil becomes more and more dull, then when you take that same pencil and you put it into your forearm, it's, it's not going to hurt as much. It's going to be dull. It won't be quite as sharp. The same thing the, um, the Native Americans said would happen with that conscience, the triangle by your heart, that every time it rubs against your heart, the corners become a little more dull and a little more dull and a little more dull. So that every time it rubs up against, it hurts a little bit less, sometimes to the point of if you commit a sin so many times, eventually your heart doesn't hurt anymore when you commit it because those sharp corners have become very, very dull. They were making the point that we need to keep our conscience sharp, just like you need to keep a pencil sharp. You take a pencil that's dull and you make it sharp by putting it in a pencil sharpener, then it becomes sharp again. The way we keep our conscience sharp, well, the, the pencil sharpener for the conscience in a sense, it's the Bible. Go back to the Bible, to the Word of God, and we remind ourselves, oh yeah, this is what God says is good. This is what God says is right. This is the command that I should follow. These are the sins that I should stay away from. That's how we keep our conscience sharp. And so let your conscience be your guide is good advice, as long as you're dealing with a conscience that has remained sharp. The second limitation of the conscience is that it doesn't tell you everything you need to know. It tells you when you do something wrong, makes you feel good when you do something right. But again, like the check engine light, the check engine light, when it comes on in your car, it just tells you that there's a problem. It doesn't tell you how to fix it. And neither does your conscience tell you how to fix the problem of feeling guilty about something. Only one thing can. We find it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he says, From infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Only the Bible can tell me how it is that I am saved. And that, of course, is the best way that God is good. Our conscience tells us that God is good in general. He sets the standard for what's good and, and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. But it has to lead me to the scriptures, where it tells me about the goodness of God in giving us a Savior who forgives our sins, 
who brings us into God's family, who promises us that God is with us now and into eternity. Only God's word can do that. That leads us to a couple of Bible buzzwords we need to be aware of. Two of them are related. We make a distinction between what we call the natural knowledge of God and the revealed knowledge of God. The natural knowledge of God, these, uh, this is what I can know about God from nature, just from looking around and observing on my own, and also from conscience, from realizing that somebody set the standard for what's good and what's not. That's the natural knowledge of God, what I can learn about God from nature and from my conscience. Anybody can learn that about God. But the revealed knowledge of God, this is what I can know about God only from the Bible. The knowledge that has to be revealed to us by God. The next Bible buzzword I want to share with you is something we've talked about, and that, of course, is the conscience. The conscience, very simply, people identify it as the voice inside of us that tells us when we are sinning or when we are doing wrong. Um, something that reveals to us that God is not only real, but God is good. So we talked about how the, uh, we know that God is real. We talked about how we know that God is good. We also said we're going to talk about how God is different. And to get into that, I'd like you to take a look at this Bible passage and tell me if the subject of this sentence is singular or plural. Remember, singular means that it's just one individual. Plural means more than one. Here's the sentence, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Well, God looks singular, but then let us in our image, that's, that's plural. In the same sentence, let's go to Isaiah chapter 6 where it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, the Lord, singular, Whom shall I, singular, send? And who will go for us? Well, that one's plural. <laughs> so referring to the same being as both singular and plural doesn't seem to make much sense. But now we're getting down the road of identifying how God is different than us. We can see it in some ways on the day that Jesus was baptized. On the day that Jesus was baptized, his cousin John, John the Baptist, was looking at Jesus as he was coming and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he was identifying Jesus as God already there. And then Jesus went into the water and it says that God the Father spoke from heaven. And he said, this is my son whom I love, announced for everyone there who was listening. And it also says God the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And so there was God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, how many gods are there? You might be tempted to think that there are three. And you might be tempted to think that also when you listen to Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, when he told his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Three. Easy, right? <laughs> Until you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says so simply, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not three gods. One God. And so this is where we get into how the term triune was created. You may have heard that term. Triune, you won't find it in the Bible. It uh, comes from two prefixes. You know, like think of a tricycle. The prefix tri means three. It has three wheels. Think of a unicycle. A unicycle, the uni just has, just has one wheel. And so people who are looking at the Bible, they, they look at these teachings that, well, there are three 
identities here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's not like he morphs into each one because all three at the same time were present at Jesus' baptism. But then the Bible clearly says there's only one God, not three gods, just one God. And so people took a look at those teachings and they put them together. There's tri and there's yun, and so we'll, we'll invent a word called triune. And that's where the word triune came from as an attempt to describe who our God is. There's God the Father, who is God. And there's God the Son, who is God. And there's God the Holy Spirit, who is God. But the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And the Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And yet they're all three God, not like one-third God, but all 100% God, able to do all the things that God can do. And so you take 100% plus 100% plus 100% and you equal <laughs> biblical math regarding God, 100%. There's only one God. But he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll do a deeper dive into all of, these, into all of this as, as we continue on with these lessons. But if this is making your head spin for now, that's actually a really good thing because it emphasizes a very important characteristic of our God, of why it's good that he's different than us. We talked about how he's, he's real, he's powerful, he's kind, he's wise, he's good. If I can't fully conceive of who God is and how he works, and how he even interacts with himself. If all of that begins to make my head spin in ways that never end up getting resolved, that just means that my God is bigger than me. If I had a God who was only big enough that he'd be able to fit into my little brain so that I could comprehend and understand everything about him, then that God would have the same limitations that, that I would, that I do. And that wouldn't be a great God to have. But to have a God who's able to go beyond what I can understand, who understands and perceives things that I cannot, whose power is greater than I can comprehend, whose wisdom and kindness and goodness and love are also bigger than I can understand, That's the kind of God I want to have. That's the kind of God we do have.